VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, September the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this Come On With It edition of Open Line. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So here in the newscast, it's some pretty nasty, windy, wet weather in store for basically the Avalon Peninsula over the weekend. Starts tomorrow, I suppose. So... Batten down the hatches, I guess. I want to say a couple of very quick thank yous. Boy, sometimes I really do consider myself quite lucky. This week managed to have a feed of moose, some rabbit, some fresh cod that was caught on Monday. So big thanks to Frank for the moose and the rabbit and Garth for the cod. But just how lucky are you to have those types of country foods available and nothing quite like it. Boy, oh boy. And just for confirmation, the fishery garden program, a guardian program, has been extended for four weeks. That's good news. And that's, of course, to monitor the inland rivers, basically in protection of the Atlantic salmon. But it's not every guardian. So it was a, certainly a step in the right direction. Like one fellow told me that in his region, there's 10 fishery guardians, and six will be remaining on the rivers for the additional four weeks. Okay. Uh, how many pictures have you seen during this summer edition of the recreational food fishery, which, of course, wrapped up on Monday, picks up again on September 24th, runs until the end of the season on October the 2nd? But how many pictures did you see of half a cod at the end of the line because a shark had the other half? You know, just, well, I guess we should all remind ourselves not to get too close to the surface of the water to retrieve our cod upon the successful jig because it looks like, it just feels like there's more sharks out there than ever before, but let us know. Okay, here comes some awkward segue moments. 65 years ago today, 1956, the king, Elvis Presley, appeared for the very first time on the Ed Sullivan Show. He'd go on to appear two more times for three in total. Now, into the, what I guess is international news, and I will admit freely, before we even get going here, I'm sort of at a loss as to what to say, and nor do I know how appropriate it is to discuss all of the issues surrounding the legacy, the life of Queen Elizabeth II. Upon her passing yesterday, peacefully apparently, at Balmoral Castle in Scotland, died at the age of 96, ending her 70-year reign. Only one monarch has served longer on the throne. That's Louis the 16th. Is it Louis the 14th? Is it the 14th day or 16th? I can't remember now. It's Louis the 14th, but he took the throne, of course, at the age of four. So, an interesting life, to say the very least. You know, people will take the time to mourn. She's adored by many, but not by all. A complicated woman, as much as she displayed the classic British resilience in her public appearances and remained very apolitical throughout her reign as the monarch and the, the Queen of Canada. So now Clarence House, which is the official residence of uh, Prince Charles, he's now King Charles III. The Queen, of course, took the throne in 1952 at the age of 25. Oversaw some extraordinary things, just for context. How many other world leaders have been in her presence over her 70 years. 15 prime ministers of the United Kingdom, 14 American presidents, 12 Canadian prime ministers, seven popes, all while Queen Elizabeth II sat on the throne in England. Some of the, you know, the monarchy is... Okay, so through the 70 years, they saw a real decline in the British Empire. The decolonization of many countries in Africa and the Caribbean, some of the welcomes that the royals have been getting in recent past, has not been very kind in some of these areas. So we can indeed talk about the colonization. 
But, you know, the Queen visited Canada some 22 times. She visited this province many times as well. I think, I don't know of all, of all the visits, but 1951, of course, with the then-Premier Joey Smallwood, spoke at the old Colony Club right here on Portugal Cove Road, which was interesting, and it was in November of that year, and I saw someone tweet about it yesterday, and here's a, a clip from her, a quote from her speech. I would indeed like to see Newfoundland in summer. Not that I see anything wrong with it in November, but I can assure you that the strongest force with which will draw us back here is the warmth of the welcome we have received this morning from all of you fine people. We shall, ever, we, pardon me, we shall never forget it, and we are forever very grateful. So that's 1951. Also visited in 1959, 1978, 1983. Notably in 1978, the Queen made her presence at Kitty Bitty Lake to attend the Royal St. John's Regatta that year. In fact, she went early in the morning to watch a couple of races, came back in the afternoon to present some medals. If you remember that day, especially if you were someone who had the Queen of England put the medal around your neck as a winner at the Royal St. John's Regatta, love to hear that story here today. Some of the most memorable occasions that I can remember, just off the top of my head, and I'm not a real monarchist. I I wasn't somewhat fascinated with Queen Elizabeth II, though, to be honest with you. Like in 2012 makes her way to Belfast and shakes hands with Martin McGuinness, who was one time commander in the Irish Provisional Army, the IRA. And he was a member of the government at that time in 2012. And the Queen walks up to McGuinness and shakes his hand with a smile on her face. And we know the tensions between the IRA and the British monarchy in particular. So that was one. And then pictures of, like, with Nelson Mandela. What does her legacy hold? I don't really know what to say. But, you know, in some form, a kind of a normal family with a lot of black marks in their own family history. You know, she was revered, but she was also reviled. Remember how she was not, apparently not quick enough to come back to London upon the death of Lady Diana. And then three of her own children, uh, their marriages end in divorce. And then, of course, what's hanging over Prince Andrew's head. So a complicated family relationship, to say the very least. So if you want to take on any of your own memories, your thoughts on the Queen and her legacy, we're happy to do it here today. What does it mean for Canada? There's going to be work to be done. And, of course, this is not, you know, people will say, it's too quick to talk about these types of things, the minutiae associated with the death of probably one of the most infamous, famous, recognizable people in the world was Queen Elizabeth II. So automatically, King Charles III is the king of, uh, the king of Canada today which brings upon some interesting pomp and circumstance. The Governor-General, Mary Simon, formally has to drive to Parliament, stand in front of a Cabinet meeting, and declare we have a new lawful and rightful liege, being King Charles III. Then there's all the sashes that have the insignia of Queen Elizabeth II, all the mentions of the Queen and all the paperwork, all the portraits of the Queen, which now will have a black ribbon attached to them. They're able to stay up for another full year. Then there's thoughts and talk about the currency. All very interesting. Maybe not that important as people are trying to consider what has happened yesterday with her passing. There's also going to be some, you know, just think about inside of government and the military. All the references to Her Majesty the Queen. And so I, I know that's probably not the most important part, but there are real implications for us in the country, even though some of it is simply based on bureaucracy and paperwork, pomp and circumstance, but it's real. And then, you know, I saw someone mention something quite interesting, that the British Empire, although it's declined significantly over her reign, and the decolonization, but there is also part of the conversation associated with colonization and the British monarchy. 
You know, I saw someone tweet out that how will we now all of a sudden get knocked off the top, the top headline will no longer be James Smith Cree Nation and 10 people slaughtered, 18 injured in 13 different crime scenes, all the while talking about the life, the times, the legacy of the monarch Queen Elizabeth II. So we can do all these things concurrently, in my personal opinion. But complicated to say the very least, and I'm not really sure what to say about it, even though I just gobbled up five or six minutes talking about Queen Elizabeth II and her legacy, if you want to talk about anything, especially if you have a memory from a visit to this province or one of her 22 visits to the country. We're happy to take it on today. Okay. This is an important topic regarding our pocketbooks. So the carbon tax, the price on pollution, with the federal scheme that if you're on the federal uh, scheme of carbon tax, four out of five get a check in the form of a rebate for more than they actually paid in carbon tax. Some people in the province wonder, why aren't we on that plan, as opposed to what we currently do and the price on fuels? But what we do have in this province, upon the negotiated bilateral agreement back in 2019, was to have home heating fuels exempt. That's important. There's a negotiation now between the province, the provinces, and the federal government about how their plan is going to look like up to 2030. The implications on home heating fuel, on average, if the home heating fuels are not exempt, it will cost those who heat their homes by oil some $900-ish on the average, more per year. There's some 48,000 households in this province that do indeed heat their homes with oil. When we talk about these types of taxes, it's about behavior and choices. You know, whether it be how you drive, what you drive, how frequently you drive, carpooling, the like, that's how these types of mechanisms are intended to work. There's no such opportunity when it comes to how you heat your home. It's fine to say that there's money coming from the government to move from oil to electric heat, but you've got to have a significant amount of money in your own bank account or the ability to borrow it to make that happen. Even though, yes, it's nice to get some support from the government if you make that choice, but we don't have any opportunity to change our behavior. Here comes the winter. If you heat your home by oil, like 48,000 homes in this province do, that's it. You have to stay warm. You certainly want to try to stay warm. Now, we all hear the stories about making choices between what we eat, how hot we keep our home, uh, filling out our prescriptions or not, or half or not. But that's got to happen here. There's very limited flexibility in the plan. There's very limited opportunity for the government of Newfoundland and Labrador to cover it off if there is going to be a carbon tax applied to home heating fuels. And as has been mentioned many, many times, for the folks out there who qualify for the home heating rebate, come on, government. The plan was put forward back in May. We were told the application process would be understood in within a few weeks, and we still don't have it. I was told it was happening this week. Well, today is Friday. It would be nice for those folks who qualify, and you've all heard the, the threshold of your net family income. But a question that I posed yesterday that I don't know if anyone can give me an answer is, okay, four of us live in my home. Myself and my wife work. Of course, our net family income would be X, but two of our boys work. But they don't pay any of the bills. Do I have to add, add them in, in my net family income? I suppose I do, but they're not paying any rent and any bills or any groceries or the like. They pay for some of their own stuff, you know, to have money in their pocket because they've put forward the effort to have a job. But we really, really, really need to see an exemption on home heating fuels because we don't have choices to make different decisions if we're trying to stay warm. All right. This story is interesting. A court ruling surrounding Gordon and Juanita Hull when Little Bay, Little Bay Islands decided that resettlement was 
a decision they took upon themselves as a community and voted for it. They were left out. I believe Juanita called this program some years back when this all was happening. So they moved to Springdale for medical reasons. And the, there's a bunch of politicians that are involved in the decision that said they are not going to get the resettlement money, somewhere between two hundred fifty dollars to $270,000. They appealed it. You know, there's lots of different rules surrounding what constitutes a permanent resident. These folks lived in Little Bay Islands since they were born in the late 1940s and raised their three children there. They only moved to Springdale for the medical reasons, but they upkept their home, paid their property taxes, electricity, and cable. And the, rule, the ruling is interesting in this form. It says that, you know, Minister, current Minister of Justice John Hogan said they are now residents of Springdale. The judge said a move can be temporary or permanent. So, what's to say that they might not move back to Little Bay Islands? They kept their home. Very much unlike, for instance, if I had a home in a small rural community that I used as a cabin. Even if I paid my property tax, electricity, and cable over a number of years, it's a different set of circumstances regarding the hulls. They, they were born on Little Bay Islands. They lived there for 60-odd years, almost 70 years, and then moved for medical reasons by maintaining their home. So they are now a partial victory for the hulls on that front. But here's some of the things that have happened with the the way communities will have these very difficult and divisive conversations to decide whether or not there's a long-term, sustainable, viable future in one community or another. And the conversations are being had. So, it used to be that the community had to vote 90% in favor to relocate. Now that's been lowered to 75. There's also a bunch of different issues as to whether or not the government will even accept your vote. So, they do a cost-benefit analysis. And it's over a 20-year time frame. And unless the savings to the government amount to $10 million or more, you might not even get what you voted for. Which just means that it's an exercise that could divide even inside a family or between neighbors. And not even knowing whether or not your vote to stay or to leave will be accepted by the government based on their own cost-benefit analysis. So that's an interesting story regarding the hulls. And these conversations are happening. We know they are. They're extremely traumatic. You know, people will have history and attachment of one community or another that may have lasted generations. And we are where we are. Which brings upon what was a real hot potato topic there for a little while when it was first a report released by Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador and then the Department of Municipal Affairs regarding cooperation, collaboration, regionalization, or our county system, which is coming. How it's going to look, and it'll look different where you live versus, say, on the Great Northern Peninsula or on the Southwest Coast, wherever. There's examples where simple cooperation has saved communities money. It's coming. We do know that some of the problem began with the fact that the local service districts and their leadership were left out of some of the working group exercises that led to the recommendations and the eventual plan. It's really incumbent on the minister to bring all hands together and to have an understanding as to how it can work. Because if it doesn't work, there's no sense doing it. You know, the easy pushback is, I'm not willing to pay more taxes for services that I will not get. I understand that. That just makes all the sense in the world. Which is why the conversation has to be very tailor-made to different pockets of the province. Whether it be end up with 20 regional governments, so to speak, or 20 different counties, they won't all work the same or look the same or feel the same. But that conversation was kicking around pretty aggressively for a while. And of course, whatever you want to talk about today, maybe you'd like to pick up on... Anything that you may have heard from John Risley on the program yesterday, the, of course, the man behind World Energy GH2, 
and the proposal on the Port of Port Peninsula, wind farm, and then the export of green hydrogen. It was, uh, there was a lot to the conversation. Or anything else under the sun, you know the deal here on this program. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. And, of course, yes, if you'd like to talk about Queen Elizabeth II and or King Charles III, we're happy to do that as well, especially if you had a medal from the Queen in 1978. I really would love to have that conversation. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. Let's get a tune going before we come back and speak with you. With today, 1972, on the album charts, Simon and Garfunkel stuck, snuck in at number 10. One of the tracks in their greatest hits record was Cecilia. When we come back, maybe Cecilia's first in the queue. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you, sir? Not too bad, Dave. How about you? I am doing well, sir. It's an absolutely, well, it's kind of like a fall day. It's a little cooler, but it's beautiful and uh in keeping with the season, so you couldn't ask for a nicer day. Yeah, gorgeous here too. And uh, unfortunately, it's the same day that uh, we have to say goodbye to Queen Elizabeth. We actually shared a birthday. I never really sent her cards, or she never sent any to me. But at the same time, we celebrated the, uh, the birthday on the same day, and I've always had a, a, a deep respect, I guess, for the relationship that we had, and hopefully it remains. Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned off the top, I'm really kind of unsure about how to talk about the appropriate time frame is to talk about people after their death and, you know, to bring all of the the adoration that she enjoyed from so many corners of the world to the the problems inside her own family, to the topics of colonization and all the rest of it. But I suppose we can talk about it all at the same time because no one person is loved or loathed by every single person on the face of the earth. So obviously sure. one of the most famous, recognizable people in the world. So there's a lot to discuss. Yep, actually got to give her flowers. I think it was in 78 she came here and as a, I think it was Cub Scouts I was in at the time. And uh, we were at the Stephenville Airport and when they arrived we were there and gave her some flowers. It was pretty, pretty memorable time. Yep. Anyway, the reason for calling today, <clears throat> I, uh, today is an important day here in our area. All this, all this week, uh, we've heard of information sessions that are taking place regarding the new hydrogen uh, project for this area, which has come with, as you know, some, some pro and con. There's definitely a place for all. Uh, to be discussed, to get the, the points out on the on the table that people need answered and this type of thing. Because I think a lot of people are asking, you know, why hydrogen, why here, and why now? Well, I guess that in itself has become evident by the fact that we're seeing companies from all over the globe posturing to get to, to be first, to, to be one of the first now in this new what we call a build-up of the hydrogen uh, industry because it's certainly not new. It's been around for quite some time. And the reason I guess that it had never been reached a point of commercialization was waiting on technology, I guess, to be able to come up with things such as the electrolyzers that are used in the process of water electrolysis to convert to hydrogen. Well, we've understand how to do it for quite a long time. It's been cost prohibitive on number one, and there hasn't been that type of what demand for anybody to make that type of investment, unlike now where you hear the reference to transitional fuels, whether that be yeah. LNG, and all of these things will be happening, and probably happening quicker than people realize. So I think that's why the so-called iron might be hot now for the Risleys of the world. Sure. And I guess, actually, if you look at Mr. Risley and what he's done, basically, he's just been 
smart enough to run ahead of what's taking place, to be one of the first in queue. Now, for us to be able to take advantage of that, now I'm speaking from somebody from Bay St. George, not just St. George's or not Stephenville, I'm talking our region, which has been identified as a very important and very valuable part of a wind corridor, I guess that makes these things viable, makes these things possible, because now, as well as Mr. Risley, we've also, here in our, in our town, we've had uh, Fortescue has come in and met with our council. They've held public information sessions, and they've expressed an interest, and I think and have even gone further to start with the registration process for the environmental uh, process to start in our region. So I'd like to express to people from Port-au-Port in particular who are my family and my friends, neighbors. I mean, I've lived here all my life. I would never promote something in your region that I would not promote in my own or I would not condone in my own. And to answer some questions that have been out there, like Dave Callahan is for this, let them put them in St. George's. Well, I'm all for it. If it's done the same way that it's planned for out there or kilometer away from houses and dwellings, major structures. Uh, the worries of wind shear, the noise, shadowing, from everything that I've researched and everything that what I would call current research that I've looked for, that would become a non-issue at those distances. I'm completely okay with that because, you know, as these windmills may appear on our, on our horizon in, in our area, um, basically, I guess what it amounts to for us is if they appear, we we end the time where we see people leaving, where we see the U-Hauls going, because since mill closures, downturns in the fishery, the moratorium, this region has never seen an economic boom of any type, and our community sizes have suffered. The communities are smaller, fewer taxpayers. Yeah. Uh, noise is an interesting one, but I, I have never been up close to a wind turbine, so I don't have any, <clears throat> pardon me, personal knowledge. But like even Mayor Cornick and the group that went, I think, to visit a wind farm in Ontario to look, have a look and get a feel and ask some questions, she reports back that the noise is not a concern versus what would have been the technology used years ago, which did indeed yeah. include a whoosh, whoosh, yeah. whoosh. But apparently that's not the case any longer. Look, uh, if we're simply talking about the economics of it and the economic impact, if your region sees a successful move by the Diamond Group of companies at the Stephenville Airport, and I know there's still a lot of balls in the air there, and or this proposal coming to pass, that will be a shot in the arm that hasn't been realized on the west coast of the island, as far as I can tell, ever. So, 100%, Patty. I mean, I've lived here. Maybe out of the life, paper mill and stuff. Going okay. away to, to school, you know, I've, I've never lived anywhere else. Um, I love it here. I've chosen to build my home and raise a family here. These are the things that are constantly missing, as most people can attest to around this entire region. When's the last time that you went out and lent a hand because your family members were putting up their house or they were shingling their house, they were moving in and they're starting their lives here? I'm, I'm fed up with having to see the point in time come when you know that it's only ultimately right after high school that somebody's probably exodusing out of here. I mean, so many of my friends had to move away. Not because they wanted to, because they had to. Now, they've made lives. No doubt they've done well. But they've done elsewhere. You know, I mean, I'm, I, as I did in a Facebook post today, I said, 
I'm so sick and tired of seeing the happy faces of grandparents ecstatic until they turned the iPad off and they had been FaceTiming with their kids and their grandkids in Alberta that they get to see for 10 days of the year. Well, maybe it's been a long time since the moratorium. The fishery isn't exactly coming back quickly, and I don't think we're going to see a big resurgence in the need for paper mills and this type of thing. Maybe we have to look forward so that we stop the erosion of what we're seeing in our area. I mean, many areas, but we're lucky enough now because of World Energy and Mr. Risley and their initiatives and their efforts to move forward with this to what I definitely call a green project. I mean, it's wind energy to hydrogen. It's not to solve of the world. It's not everything that's going to be every part of the puzzle. But as I said before, it's a piece. And we should have a standard chance, of, a fair chance. That's why I'm telling people in Port-a-Port uh, that are opposed to this. Like today, there's some kind of a rally against these information sessions. They've asked for transparency, so please don't block or intimidate the information sessions from going ahead. It's this company's attempt to be transparent. I intend to attend them and to to ask the questions, as I have been, and a lot of people have been, and they've gotten the answers that they wanted. Please do that. Go to these sessions with an open mind, and maybe, just maybe, this would be a, a part in that puzzle where child graduates from grade 12 in a year or two and goes on to do the education that gives them and lands them a job right here making the same kind of money that they would make in alberta or elsewhere yeah well right even here risley uh, and his group say that they're also going to be directly investing in training for people who'd like to work in their industry so i mean it depends on where you live in the province as to what what your concerns might be about this proposal or anything else but anyway, Dave, I appreciate you chiming in as a person living on the west coast of the island. Anyone else in the region, whether you be completely opposed to it and uh, want to share what the reasons are, you're happy and welcome to call the program as well. All opinions matter, and 100%, if you've got viable concerns, they should be dealt with. And I'm sure that this company is willing to work with anybody that would have viable concerns. I've, I've engaged them, I've talked with them, and I've been very, very pleased with what I've heard and, and the responses from them. They're... To say that they're trying to do things secretly, it's a private company trying to be first. They're very transparent in what they're doing. They've engaged government. Give them a chance. We need them. We need you, Port of Port, and Port of Port needs us. Let's all do it. Appreciate the time, Dave. Have a nice weekend. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. And, you know, like we asked Mr. Risley directly yesterday, I mean, the the general public here are pretty gun-shy about the big mega-projects. You know, when something has a price tag of $12 billion, people go, oh, hey, now, where are we going? It's vastly different than the Muskrat Falls project, which we know is a fiasco. In this one, asked Risley directly, any provincial money? He said no. Asked the minister responsible, Andrew Parsons, he said no. That gives some people some comfort. We're not the customer here. He said in some time in the future, if and when hydrogen is green, green hydrogen pardon me, is going to be used here in this province or in this country, that he could be the supplier. But I'm not built into the cake here. I'm not baked in as the customer, unlike the Muskrat Falls project. So... If Mr. Risley and his group and his backers, wherever he's getting this capital, if they think they've got a project that could be profitable and a country, a full country, saying that they're willing to buy the product, well, that's between them. Our concerns, of course, would be any investment made by our government. Now, there will indeed be pots of money from the federal government on this front, pretty clearly. And if we do all the right things and a comprehensive look at what the impact will be environmentally, then if, if those things all come to pass to the satisfaction of the people in the region and the provincial government, then their business 
is between them. What do you think? Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's see here. Line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Hi. I'm just calling to see how you could actually get a person certified. Uh, the person had a mental illness, and it led to a drug addiction. And he's after been in and out of hospital several times in that Waterford, signed himself out, uh, not able to uh, do personal care or anything with himself anyway. It's been going on for a few years now. And he has, uh, he had a surgery there. We don't know how he had an injury. He had a surgery there a couple of weeks ago. And was supposed to have another surgery the next day. But they couldn't do it. They had to, uh, so much infection, they were putting them through the hyperbaric chamber for 20 to 50 sessions. And he left the hospital. And we spoke to the doctor that done him, and he said, we can't certify him. Uh, because there's two or three questions that they answer. And if, if they answer those questions properly, they're considered being in sound mind. So the families, after being in contact with the MHA, there's no return call. Uh, the doctor said he can't certify or commit him. Uh, in January, uh, he was in hospital and had a um, heart trouble because of drug addiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just uh, it just seems to be going on and on and on. It seems like now the only thing, the only thing, if the person does something to someone else or uh, the family ends up doing something to the person to, you know, probably, I don't know, make them so disabled that they have to go in hospital. They can't walk out. Understood. The The medical community are guided by legislation in this case. It's called the Mental Health Care Act and Treatment Act, so there can be mandated treatments for people who live with serious, severe, persistent mental illness in the province. So how that relates directly to addictions, I'm not 100% sure, but that's the piece of legislation that guides any opportunity for a healthcare professional to commit someone, for instance, to the, someone to the Waterford in this case. So I'm not sure how to speak to it beyond the fact that this is governed by law, not just opinions of doctors. Yeah, because even uh, the doctor spoke to him about um, nutrition and mental health and whatever, and uh, he even said he even got a hold of. Um, psychiatry psychiatry wouldn't come to see him wouldn't come to the hospital wouldn't wouldn't come for a visit in in the room after a surgery this is what's going on in our healthcare today yeah i i wouldn't know what to say about why a psychiatrist wouldn't come so he has been evaluated by a psychiatrist if he has a formal diagnosis right several times yes okay not the water for him have to bring them there lots of times police are after bringing them there um it's just non-stop and where is he now we don't even know oh my gosh and he's supposed to be in the hyperbaric chamber like every day because there's so much infection there and we're not really sure where the infection is coming from if it's coming from where the the injury or if it's from needing you what did your MHA say? Because these are the type of topics, boy, if I was a politician elected a member of the House of Assembly, 
I wouldn't really know where to turn because in, in legal matters, you almost need legal advice as opposed to a politician's guidance. But what did the MHA say? The MHA said that he'll give us a call back. He'll see what he can do and he'll give us a call back, and that's a week today. Yeah, it, it might be an idea to go, regardless of who your MHA is, to go directly to the Department of Health and Community Services because that's that legislation falls in under their purview. I know everything is with the Department of Justice, but that legislation, they're the ones who would understand it the best. They're the ones that could point you in the right direction. But it really sounds like you need a, also a legal opinion on this one as to what next steps you can take. Okay, we went to the legal place, the provincial, whatever it is. They'll give you... Uh, one half hour for $40, and then they said that uh, we don't even deal with this. Go to the Law Association. Yeah. So how do you get in contact with the Law? The Law, the law Society? Yes, yeah. Okay, I'll, I don't know if you're going to have much luck there either, but I'll, I'll give you a number. But I would also, I'm going to give you two numbers here. So right off the bat, to call the Law Society, and I really don't know if that's the right place to go, but it's 722. Yeah. 4740. Mm-hmm. But here's another one. Uh, and this this one I give out all the time. This is the Public Legal Information Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. So they'll either be able to give you some clear legal advice for free, or they can absolutely point you off to the referral to the, the appropriate person or department or society. And so their number at the, the acronym is PLIAN, P L I A N. It's 722 2643. That's the ones who we're talking to. Oh, you talked to the public legal crowd? Okay, well, if they said call the Law Society, which I don't know what they're going to be able to do for you, but uh, there's good people at play. So if that's the advice they gave you, give the Law Society a shout. And please do contact the department directly, because the Department of Health and Community Services, because that's where that legislation is housed. And let me know how you make out, because if, if you don't get anywhere with all the different entities we just talked about then, I'll see what else I can do. So what have you got to uh, number for Department of Health and Community Services. Well, I suppose I do. Um, I see your contact. There's all kinds of different contacts for them. Uh, I, I, right off the top of my head, how about if I put you on hold and I'll find a number, the appropriate number for you, okay? Thanks. Okay, no problem. Let's leave that there. Uh, David, will I take another one here before we go to the break? What do you want to do? All right, let's go. Line number one, Bruno, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Okay, you? Oh, not too bad. I missed your show yesterday. I was feeling a little under the weather. Uh, Apparently, you had Mr. Risley on. Is that true? That's right. Well, I look forward to listening to that uh, on uh, the Internet, and I'm sure we'll talk again about it. But I, I did want to talk to you about it. First of all, you know, Dave brought tears to my eyes with uh, the promise of a revolution uh, in the way of life of Newfoundland with this uh, plan that Mr. Risley is bringing to you. Congratulations both to Dave and to all of the beneficiaries of the beneficence and magnitude of Mr. Risley. Um, You know, when you travel in southern Alberta, uh, the fields are dotted with windmills under contract to the farmers. So the value of wind uh, in the Canadian context is very well understood and well documented. 
Is it true that in Newfoundland, the value of the wind is zero? Who said that? Um, is this plan going to be paying anything for the wind? Well, I don't think anybody's had a negotiated agreement at, at that stage, as far as I can tell. Mr. Risley doesn't know. The minister responsible didn't know. I don't think there's even been a deal. There hasn't been a release from the environmental assessment. Now, I know they have to do this at breakneck pace. If they're talking about exporting in 2025 and erecting all the wind turbines, the 164 of them, the ammonia plant, the hydrogen plant, to establish a mark, to establish a royalty scheme, whether it be on water or wind, and what they're going to pay for electricity, uh, are we going to lease them the land or sell them the land? I think there's a lot of things yet to be decided, to be honest, Bruno, as far as I, I can tell, anyway. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. Let's have a look at it from 30,000 feet, though, so we can kind of get an overview of the whole thing. Um we know that n nothing has revolutionized the fact that when when we take uh, energy from the uh, the wind and uh, uh, break it down so that we produce hydrogen, that uh, we lose a lot of the efficiency it costs to do that. Right? Still costs to do that. And uh, looking at it from thirty thousand feet, we're looking at an industry that's not developed yet. And uh, that uh, the, the cost of which is undetermined. But again, looking at it from 30,000 feet, we know that <coughs> producing ammonia requires uh, energy input. So on top of the inefficiency of the wind, you've got the inefficiency of conversion. That would be their own business ammonia. problem, though, wouldn't it, Bruno? Yeah. Yeah, it is, but so it, it's conversion to ammonia, and uh, and we know again from thirty thousand feet that once we get it to Germany, converting ammonia uh, back to hydrogen takes guess what more energy. So we take the energy from the wind in an inefficient way, we convert it and then uh, into ammonia, and then we inefficiently again turn it from ammonia back into hydrogen. And we're talking about an industry that's going to use those parameters and somehow make money for somebody. Is that the story? Well, uh, Bruno, that's, isn't that their problem? Not mine or yours? Well, what, except that when you look at it from 30,000 feet and it has such obvious problems, you have to wonder that when a robber baron like Risley blows into town, that you turn the whole thing over to him. We still don't know a thing, apparently, so that we can't, we don't know uh, whether the environmental assessment's going to include any of those things. But we know it's going to have to be done quickly. Will they just look at the wind turbines, which is the only sensible thing if we're going to have a transparent process? Or are we going to go down the same road we went down with Muskrat Falls? Congratulations, by the way. I still got a little bit of room in my church pew, Patty, now that you've uh, finally decided that Muskrat Falls is, what did you call it? Is that Fiasco. I've been calling it that for years. But anyway, Bruno, we have this song and dance every time. Fiasco, welcome. You know, you, uh, think about it, but there's still room in my church pew. Anyway, we're looking at this project in 30,000 feet. 
And uh, we know that we have a lot of pieces to put together before anybody can make green hydrogen cost effectives. And then we have to ask, then what possibly could be the motivations of someone, uh, Robert Barron, like John Risley, from blowing into town? And we've already, we already know that it's going to cost federal dollars to get this off the ground. Mm-hmm. We know that the environmental assessment, uh, we don't know what it's going to be on. Is it just on the wind? Or is it going to be on the whole project and give a green light to something? It's going to be on uh, the ammonia plant, the hydrogen plant, the port, the corridor of wind turbines, where they are, impact on wildlife, flora, fauna. I mean, I've read it. I've read what the parameters are, and it's available if you'd like to have a look. But I'll give you the last word, Bruno. I haven't looked at it, but that confirms my worst fears, Patty, that this just gives Robert Bear and Risley the Mm -hmm. keys to the farm to do whatever he will. This is just another Muskrat Falls in the making. Except I'm not the customer. Well, you know, you can say that, but we haven't I'm seen not. enough to know that you're not the customer. The robber baron is going to suck up money from everybody and everywhere. From 30,000 people. Uh, the people on the west coast of Newfoundland should hold their breath that Dave isn't your prophet, even though uh, he... Uh, comes uh, wearing a ro- the robe of a prophet. No, but he actually said that he encourages people to ask questions of the proponent, not uh, not anything about robes and sachets and red carpets or anything else. That was very clearly what he said is people should ask the relevant questions and hopefully get the answers. So that's not what he said at all, Bruno. But anyway, right. I hope you have a nice weekend. We're off to the break and uh, stay in touch. One more question. Oh, Just one more question. Is, is, Brenda, is Brendan Paddock connected to John Risley and, and this pro- project? Well, I don't know, but we do know that Mr. Paddock and Mr. Risley have a long business relationship. There's no reason to believe that he would not. And uh, he's a, he's a, a, an advisor to uh, the Newfoundland government on energy, is he not? No, he was taken off that committee. You're talking about the, uh, the Church River analysis team? Yeah. Yeah, no, he's not part of that any longer, which was a good decision because the conflict was obvious. And it's uh, it disappeared now, has it? Well, I mean, we asked. I asked the premier about it right here on this program, and so my understanding is now he has stepped away from that analysis team, and I'm not sure what else to add to that conversation. Well, uh, I'm saying uh, that we're looking at this whole thing from thirty. Okay, Bruno, if we're just going to say no thirty thousand feet and Robert Barron again, we've heard that part. No one's going to produce point. green hydrogen from the windmills on any kind of a plan that makes sense. So you have to look at what's really behind this project and this plan. Okay. Clearly well, not <coughs> producing green hydrogen. You have to beware. You have been taken before. You still haven't Bruno. come up with how you're going to pay for the disaster on the, on the musk, at Muskrat Falls. I don't know if there's room, how much room beyond Muskrat Falls there is, there is in my church view, Patty. But uh, this whole plan stinks. Never going to work. It's going to cost you big time. Beware. Have a happy weekend. You too. Take care, Bruno. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. And yeah, so there are some important questions being posed. And Brendan Paddock absolutely is involved with World Energy GH2. He's a director on the board. So that's clear. And we understand that. 
And people will say oh, there's a relationship between, uh, for instance, the Premier, Mr. Paddock. That's true. We all, we all know that and understand that. But the protections and the issues that we have to broach, because if I'm not the customer, I'm not so worried about their business model. But if there are other things that we need to consider, like the water being used, which we discussed directly with Mr. Risley yesterday, whether it be how, like what's in it for us? So Mr. Risley, when asked that direct question, was about you know the jobs that will be created and the tax base that will be expanded because of the jobs. But we need to know very clearly about any additional potential supports required if and when the business is failing, they don't have a market or they can't make it profitable because of lost energy or whatever, which hopefully could be their problem, not my problem, not your problem. Yes, the water is a concern, and whether it's a royalty to be paid on water used, whether it's a royalty to be paid, uh, I don't know how you calculate a royalty based on wind, but those are things we have to consider, you know, and importantly, what will become of the Crown land? It's one of the reasons why they say they're coming to this province with this proposal, is the access to Crown land, the access to the water, the wind, the deep water port, and how close it is to Europe. We have to ensure we protect all of it. Look, the crown land is a big one for me. If we are going to put crown land in play, it's probably in all of our best interest that we lease it for whatever years, for renewables that come up every five years or what have you. Because if something goes wrong and the business doesn't end up viable, we cannot have a position where all of a sudden the crown land was sold and it'd be an enormous swath of crown land sold for one purpose and then that purpose goes away and then who knows what becomes of that land. I guess we go back through all the process or whatever else he would decide to potentially do with the land, but we can put some protections in place. Look, all the questions that people are asking with some of the unknowns, they're fair, and we should ask them. We have to ask them. I'm less concerned with the business model if I'm not the customer. But whatever, like Bruno insinuates that there might be something else to it. Okay, like what? Let's think out loud. People will say, what about access to our, uh, our hydro? Okay, but for what purpose and who's the customer? What's he going to do with it? These are I don't know the answer to those questions. Okay, whether there's other related matters, uh, potential opportunities that we haven't quite understood or discussed or haven't been revealed, let's talk about it. No problem. But it, it's not the Muskrat Falls project. And that's where we're all gunshot because we can't afford to go down that path again. We simply cannot. We'd be doomed. But if I'm not the customer, it has a different feel to me. How it feels to you, we can talk about it right after the news. But first, let's go to line number one. Derek, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. How about you? Uh, good, Patty. The young fellow asked for the keys last week. Um, it would have been in the Sobeys Boston Pizza on Kelsey Drive area or Dominion on Black Marsh Road. It had a Toyota key, Chev key, and numerous house keys and a snap ring keychain. If someone happened to find it, if they could call uh, Dave and let him know he has my phone number and have to get back to me, it would be greatly appreciated. Absolutely. If someone finds those keys, we can reunite them with your young fella. So give us the locations one more time. Okay, it's Sobeys and Boston Pizza on Kelsey Drive. And then it would have been Dominion on Black Marsh Road. Okay. That's the only three places he went, and it was a Tuesday night. So hopefully somebody found them. Hopefully so, Derek. So Dave has your number. If someone calls us, we'll be sure to connect you with that person. Patty, thank you so much. All the best, Derek. You're welcome. Love the show, buddy. You're Thanks, doing a great man. job. Appreciate All that. Right. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. 
Ah, uh, yeah, if you got those keys, they're no good to you. They're good to Derek's young fellow, though. All right, how are we doing out there, David? Let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, it might be a great time for you to get on the program. The topic, completely up to you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today, thanks. How about you? Good, boy. Good, Patty. Go uh, Patty, uh, just want to make a quick comment before I get on to uh, the other topic about uh, the late Queen Elizabeth II. And, you know, I, I felt, even though I'm not a monarchist by any stretch of the imagination, I think, you know, it's kind of outdated uh, thing to me, but in my view. But, however, you know... There was something about Queen Elizabeth, the late Queen, that that uh, it's hard to hard to say, but it made you feel comfortable. The fact that she's gone uh, leaves a, 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 a deep space that we don't know how it's going to be filled. Maybe it's because she's been around so long. She seemed always seemed to me to be such a steady figure, you know. Never got uh, excited about anything or whatever. Just seemed to be able to always say and handle whatever situation came up, whether it be you know the political uh, things going on in the world or whatever, uh, and or uh, you know all the, the things that were going on in her family. Uh, a much respected woman, and I was close enough to her in 1978 at the regatta. I didn't go to the regatta. I don't even know if I knew that she was coming to the regatta. But however, uh, I was fortunate enough to be that when she arrived there, that I happened to be within feet of her, and. Uh, Again, like I said, uh, not a monarchist by any stretch, but I was thrilled. To, to, there was just something about her, um, other than the fact that she was a very attractive person, for starters. Not that that matters uh, anything, but she just stood out. And uh, one other thing, thing that stood uh, with me all these years, Patty, about that is, like I said, I was close enough. And our, our we our eyes fixed on each other, and she smiled, and I smiled back, and uh, that that stayed with me. She just the way that she uh, handled the public, and seemed so appreciative of the public, you just couldn't help but like her. I kind of admired her, and I'm the furthest thing from a monarchist as well. I mean, my family's Irish. I. You know, it's not like it's something that I dwell on and focus on, but there was something about her. She navigated some pretty incredible times, even inside her own family. So I know not everybody likes everybody, but she is adored by millions and millions of people. And, of course, there would be members of indigenous communities and or in Africa or in the Caribbean where they've got distinct problems with the monarchy and how the monarchy has behaved with their peoples over the years. So there's going to be a lot of different types of conversations being had. Yeah, for sure. And uh, like I say, again, uh, you know, I'm not a fan of the monarchy, but couldn't help but, uh, I, you know, respect her 
and uh, she leaves a void uh, in my mind right now. You know, when when someone passes away uh, that's respected like her, a world figure, it, it just seems, a, I don't know, kind of a lonely feeling, a lonely void that, uh-oh, like what's going to happen now, you know, sort of thing. But that that is a may. Uh, I was sad to hear it. Uh, her family must be devastated at, at losing her, and a lot, of, a lot of people loved her. So with that being said, Patty, if I can, I'd like to make a, a, a comment with regards to uh, regionalization. And I heard, uh, I heard your uh, introduction here this morning, and one thing that you said really hit home again with me, and that's the fact that like you said, you don't want to, nobody likes to be paying for services that they don't get. And that's what I'm afraid of, uh, that we're going to end up down the road. There hasn't been much talk that I've heard recently about regionalization for the last months over the summer, maybe, but I'm sure it's still, you know, uh, uh, a hot topic within government and whatnot. And certainly something's going to come down the road. Uh, come at us down the road with regards to it, and I just hope it's the right thing. One uh, thing that I never hear talked about, I hear talked about, you know, councils and various councils and whatnot to need to amalgamate, and also, like, I hear all kinds of talk about local service districts. Uh, you know, I live in a local service district myself. But what I, what I don't hear about, and I'd like to bring the people's attention is that there are many, many, many pockets, uh, probably encompassing tens of thousands of people that are not in a council area and are not in a local service district area. And I never hear any talk about them, you know, how those people are going to be treated. Will they be treated the same as in a local service district? Or, or whatnot. Uh, I don't know if you've heard anything with regards to those pockets of people that are not represented by any uh, lo- form of local government. Good question. And that's where I think it becomes extremely case-by-case specific here. Because if you answer that question with one part of the province where there's an LSD, a couple of incorporated, incorporated municipalities, cabin country governed by nothing, it, that becomes a different question and answer than it would for other areas. I guess it's depending on population and the services provided or not. So those are excellent questions, Tom, which is why, why so many people have said, you know what, I'm not interested. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to talk about it. But it's coming. So that's where I think the minister has her hands full. She's really got to be able to get out there speaking the different regions of the province with her senior bureaucrats and people from MNL, LSD leadership, so that we can get some answers to what you just posed as an excellent question. Yeah, totally. And, 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 and I, for one, live in an area far removed from any, let's, let's say, serviced area, serviced town that we could possibly be, you know, amalgamated with, regionalized with. So, like, uh, I, can, I think I can safely say that in a hundred years from now, there will still be no services where I live. And, uh, and we live in a local service district, and 
we have what services, I, I mentioned this to you before on a call, but just briefly, we have the services that we choose to have and we pay for them. You know, we, 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 and we have all the necessary services like garbage collection and fire and, and all of those kinds of things, uh, you know, uh, lo- uh, area lighting and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we have all that, but we pay for it. We don't need to have an expensive town hall with with employees and all that kind of thing to be able to live safely and happily and have the services that are required. We don't have to have that, and I hope the government sees that. Yes, no doubt there are towns that need to amalgamate. There are, you know, why should three, four towns in close proximity to one another each have a fire hall. But maybe what the government does, needs to do, Patty, is the council areas where it appears that the biggest savings will be by amalgamating and doing away with excess fire halls and and all that like, take on that first. Do that. Get that out of the way. Do what's right with that. And then come on the heels of that, come in and look at people who are not incorporated, who live in local service districts, and who live in areas that have no form of local government and have no services, and say, okay, how do we're not offering these people any services. They're responsible and doing a great job on providing their own water and their own sewer and all of that kind of stuff, and they're doing it okay. So what do we do with these people? Do we leave them alone and let them live happily ever after? Or do we put some kind of a poll tax or something? A standard amount of money that every citizen, uh, every family or whatnot pays. Patty, I have had, and this is, uh, again, I don't want to pay any more any taxes. Who wants to pay taxes if you're not getting any support? But I've had firsthand experience, and I'll give, I'll give you an example of where uh, uh, regionalization has taken in rural areas on the pretext that, yes, this is what it's going to cost you. You're again, you're, they're all responsible, like we are, for our own services and all that kind of stuff. And they pay for them. So they got their hand in and they got their foot in the door by a very low amount of tax, something like I just mentioned. But they were in no time at all. And all of a sudden, up go the taxes, up go everything, to now... My daughter, and I've been there uh, on long-term visits with her, and I've seen it firsthand. She pays the same amount of money for her taxes and gets nothing. Well, I shouldn't say she gets nothing. She gets garbage collection. That's it. And she pays the same amount as a person in in the big town that's there encompassing all these rural areas, and they get water, they get sewer, they get street lighting, they get all of the, you know, 
all of that kind of stuff. And my daughter gets nothing, but they stay, they pay the same amount of money. Uh, and recently, they've limited, even with all that tax money, that you can only put two bags of garbage out. And, and that's bad enough. So if you've got four bags because you're doing something, you got to wait, stow those two bags um, till the next garbage pickle. And, 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 and that's bad enough. They now decided that people who live in this region are going to have a certain colored mm-hmm. garbage bag, a certain color garbage bag. It's going to be orange. And you can only put your garbage in orange bags. And by the way, you have to come to the major town in the area, in that region, and buy the garbage bag. $3 a bag. So am I nervous about regionalization? Yes. I have reason to be nervous. And let me tell you, I've warned people. Watch what's going on with regionalization. And people, if you're not in a, uh, a current uh, 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 area that's serviced by some kind of uh, authority, don't think you're going to be getting away scot-free because you're not. No, you won't. But that's where, that's where all the unknowns lie, though, isn't it, Tom? It's the worry that the re- either we get some answers to alleviate the worry or the worries can be verified and then we try to deal with it if it's all manageable. I'll give you the last word. I'm late for the break, Tom, but I'll let you wrap it up. Okay. Uh, yeah, thanks for the time, Patty. And I just want to keep in mind, people, to keep in mind what's going on with regionalization because I tell you, people, when it's done, it's done. There'll be no coming back from it. So whatever you need to do now to get answers, try and get those answers beforehand so that you can offer your input into this before it happens. Thanks, Patty, for the uh, for the time. You're welcome, Tom. Take good care. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, uh, apparently on a come on with it Friday. Looking for a few callers this morning. So, once again, if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM. That's 8626. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Joe, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks, Joe. How about you? Pretty good. Uh, Mine's really quick, and I'm on my break from work, so I don't have a whole lot of time. But um, I'm pretty sure we're paying some sort of subsidy for Canada growth. Uh, canopy growth, sorry, and it's not really producing anything right now, and that has a large capacity to make a lot of, of fruits and vegetables. I'm just curious why. I don't know. It's a good question. So I don't think we're, we have no financial relationship with canopy growth anymore. Uh, wherever they got a break on the remittance, all that nonsense with that stupid contract that the government let out, they paid us what they owed us on that front, and now we're done with them. Um, and I can't remember the exact number. It was in and around a million dollars. Now, there was always the contentious issues surrounding who owned the land, how they bought the land, the value of the land, who owned the building, all that stuff. And I, some of that's a bit fuzzy because I haven't even heard the word canopy in quite a while. But our financial relationship with them is over. Okay, so right now we're not on the hook. We just have a giant state-of-the-art greenhouse that's mothballed. Uh, I think... I think that's accurate thing to say, yes. Nor, we don't own it. 
There's a number of okay. company owns it. Remember all the confusion and the questions about how that all unfolded? So, yeah, it's a good question because it's absolutely a terrific facility to deal with some pressing matters here in the province, like food. It's state-of-the-art. I was in there doing a bit of work when they were originally doing it. That can produce a lot of food. They had a lot of intent to grow there. Yeah. So I'm just really confused of why it's just sitting there. Like, Can we buy it back? And we're talking about food security, and we have a massive greenhouse doing nothing. It's just confusing. It is to me, Joe, and because now that you've planted that seed, pun intended in my mind, <laughs> I'll see what's going on with that because that's an excellent uh, question that you pose. Well, like, I'm, I'm, I was in and out of like most of the rooms when they were setting it up, and I don't think people realize how massive and state-of-the-art that was. Like That's top-of-the-line hydroponics to produce any vegetable, any fruit, any time of the year. Yeah, yeah you're so absolutely right. Thought I'd bring it up because I just waiting to hear someone bring it up, and they never do, so why not me? Well, I'm glad you did because now I'm going to chase it. <laughs> Perfect. Appreciate this, Joe. Uh, thank you so much. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. That's a good one because, I mean, maybe Joe has heard me in the past say we should really look at food security and insecurity with peppering the landscape with, like, small, medium-scale greenhouses. Technology is, has advanced. It would certainly cure some of our woes. It could create community type of gardens. It could create the jobs that would be in attendance in, just so far as operations go. So, anyway, that's a good one. Uh, let's go to line number three. Leo, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, I'm calling about uh, extended warranty on vehicle when you buy a vehicle. Uh, a little over three years ago, I purchased a new vehicle. Uh, I paid $2,200 of change plus tax and interest on the loan and the interest and the insurance. And was told that for the first three years, my maintenance was covered. That's no problem. Uh, a little over three years into the term, uh, my car was involved in an accident. The car was rolled off. No big deal. Uh, when I went to check and see if I was entitled to a refund and extended warranty, I bought, uh, I was told there was no refund on the extended warranty or the premiums that I paid for my uh, medical insurance. I don't know if people are aware of this or not. I, I don't know if they are or not. It's an interesting one, but, you know, it just goes to show you that sometimes people worry about what happens in the worst-case scenario. Well, if I need an extended warranty, because when your powertrain warranty cuts out, for instance, it's a big deal if you need to replace an engine or a transmission or something. So people are easily sold an extended warranty. But questions like, you know, what happens if with the extended warranty if I sell the vehicle? What happens if I come to a point where I have not used it, the vehicle is now sold, I've never used my extended warranty, can I get a rebate? Those are the exact questions you've got to ask, because that's where they make their money. There's not a huge margin on new vehicles. Some of the clerical monies and the dealer holdback, they make some money there. But if they can send you an extended warranty, that's where they make the big bucks. That's understandable now. Further to the question, about 13 years ago, the same thing happened. A new vehicle. Three years under a five-year term, car was rolled off. Uh, I found out at the time that each month, a portion of your premium you paid was deducted, was deducted from the total amount. No big deal. I did. Now, I paid my regular maintenance for the, every six months or 8,000 kilometers. Three years later, I did get a reimbursement of approximately 40% on this one, on that car loan insurance. But on this one, I'm told I'm not entitled to anything. And, and the extended warranty or the uh, money I paid for insurance payments for medical if I needed it. Is that just because it's, uh, different companies sold? Do they have different rules? Simple as that? No. Uh, 
was two two different companies, but uh, and two different financial institutions. But I, I'm I'm told I'm not in my either a refund. I know people wear this and that. That okay? If you need the warranty, fine. I didn't need the warranty. The car was rolled off in said time, but I'm told I'm not entitled to either refund. So to me, I think that's, that's car dealerships or whatever are duping or, or robbing the public buying their vehicles. Well, certainly you're planting a question in people's minds that they should absolutely ask. If they're in the queue waiting for delivery of a new car and you're going to be in the office with the sales manager, they're going to ask you if you'd like to purchase an extended warranty or undercoating or rust coating or all the rest of it. Make sure that you have a good look around for some suggestions about what questions to ask so you protect yourself before you sign on the dotted line. Absolutely. That's right. I mean, there's just something I've never explained to you. And to me, I think it's just a money grab for the dealerships that if you send a warranty you need it for, if you don't need it, I lost money as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. And people should be made aware of this, what the dealerships are doing with your money. Yeah, just ask the questions. Put the protections in place before you find out the hard way that you spent money and never got a single thing for it. I appreciate this this morning, Leo. Thank you. Thanks for the time. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, that's a good one. You know, like everything else, when you're getting into whatever, an extended warranty on some electronics or a vehicle or an appliance, know what you're getting yourself into. Right? Why not? Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, the topic, well, that is up to you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Good day, Mr. Daly. Good day to you. Yeah, I happen to be listening to you here on your last caller, but extend the warranty. Okay. And, well, I, I, I purchased a vehicle off private deal, and the factory warranty was out three months after I purchased the vehicle private deal, and he had an extended warranty. Thank God the extended warranty is a great thing. And the extended warranty at uh, the vehicle that I bought off of this person, all you have to do is go to this dealership where a car was purchased in the beginning, and uh, it can be transferred over to the buyer like me. And it really came in good for me because, but and after eight months after that, like I say, the I had worked on the vehicle. Thank God that uh, that this person did uh, extend the trans the extended warranty over to me. With no cost. If it ever comes to the point where you use your extended warranty, of course it's worth every dollar, for sure. I had to use it, thank God. But like you say, it was a private. It was a private. It was the. It was a private uh, buy for me to offer this person, right? But I had to. Then once you go to this dealership where she bought her, once she was in my name, what? But then they had to go in to confirm that the are transferring the extended warranty over to me. So that was great. Yeah, well, absolutely. If it worked for you, that's the good news. Yeah, that was great. So I just had to call in and let you know. I'm glad you did. You know. Okay, have a nice day. Same to you, sir. Thanks a lot. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's keep rolling. Line number one, Dorcas, here on the air. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, Patty, I listen to your home line every once in a while. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. And uh, today I have a problem, I'd say, and a good many more small business owners probably do. We have not received no information about sugar tax. We have not received no form or anything to do out. 
And every three months I have to do my taxes. So mine is up now for the last of September to be done before the last day of October. So where do I send the money if I'm collecting it, which I am? Is there a form to be filled out? It needs to be more said in the news than what's being said. Well, I don't think the news knows the answers to some of these questions. Uh, isn't, the, isn't your wholesaler applying the tax at their level? I, when I buy my things, they charge me sugar tax. When I sell, I charge a sugar tax. Well, there's a monthly remittance required. Uh, so the wholesaler, here, here's what I know. The wholesaler was given base information from the provincial government. They will be able to provide you with a remittance form and know how to go about it because they're going to be doing the exact same thing. So that's exactly what I would do. I would call my wholesaler and get the, 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 the link that they were given by the, from the provincial government, what a provincial government remittance form looks like because they're doing it already. The government sends me a form to do out every three months, and it has to be in before the fourth month. So when I receive my form now, sometime in September, I don't know if I'm going to get one for the sugar tax now because there's nothing about it in the news saying where you have to send it to or anything. So I was just wondering now, how do I do it, you know? Wouldn't you just send it to the Department of Finance? Probably so. Yeah. Probably so. It has to be done up separate, I wonder. I don't imagine you'd have to separate it from any other taxes or remittances you owe the provincial government. Mm-hmm. There's got to be an accommodation on whatever the standing form is. I don't know what it looks like because I've never had to do it. Mm-hmm. But I would try to get some guidance from my wholesaler because they're absolutely doing it. That's where the taxes are being applied. Okay, thank you. No problem at all. No. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. I mean, isn't that just kind of nature of the beast with how this is rolled out? Here we are. It came into effect on the 1st of September. Here it is on the 9th. And Dorcas is a small business owner and doesn't know what to do. Doesn't know how to apply it, how to uh, fill out whatever the remittance form will look like, where to even send it. It just kind of speaks to the chaotic nature of what's going on here. And this says, you know, some people were mocking small business owners and wholesalers for asking these questions at the 11th hour before the tax came into effect on the 1st. Turns out they were asking questions because they were kind of in the dark. And that's an uncomfortable spot to be, especially when you're talking about your relationship with the government, provincially or federally, and anything related to your taxes. So there you go. I think the consumer is every bit as confused. You know, I don't, I don't know what the number will be. I'm going to take a stab at it, say 25. 25 pictures of receipts that people have showed me where they were buying product that we were told was exempt from this tax, and lo and behold, they were being taxed for it. I mean, how and why does that work? The Provincial Minister of Finance, Siobhan Cody, her office has said, in reaction to some of these complaints and these stories that they've heard, is that simply call the minister's office. To what end? I mean, I think if the complaints are understood to the point where we've got, if I've got 25, they've got 2,500. So if they know what's happening at the retail level, they know the confusion at the wholesale level, they've heard all the complaints, so... I don't know how many more calls they need, but whatever adjustments can be made, need to be made. And, you know, this is where governments, I think, have a hard time admitting that something hasn't gone as intended. Whether it be about encouraging healthy lifestyle choices or tax scrap or whatever people want to call it, just the mechanism itself isn't understood. And we're over a week into it. So let's go back to the drawing board. Let's figure it out. I mean, even if it's, uh, you know, we're not going to apply the tax to be paid by the consumer, we're going to encourage the manufacturers to lower their sugar content because then regardless of what you're, you like to buy when you go to the shop, it will have less sugar. If that's the intended outcome, that's the intended goal, then that's one surefire way to achieve it. Very much like what they did in the United Kingdom, but just imagine. 
9th of September and someone who's in retail selling these product products doesn't know where to go or what to do about how to remit the taxes collected to the provincial government. Extraordinary stuff. Uh, and pick up on what Tom had to say about regionalization and the questions that he poses. I, I think that's a really helpful exercise, and this show can indeed be part of it. But has there been anything done, regardless of where you live here in the province, has there been any further conversation since the big uproar that we heard and experienced, you know, some couple, couple three months back? It was hot button, and people were talking about it, whether it be, and most of the comments, of course, were completely opposed to any move down that road. Has anything advanced? Because if it's coming, then we need to understand how and why. And for every different community, there will be a different set of questions and a different set of answers. So I just wonder where you live. Have you heard any more about it? All right, we are on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, still plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the Lieutenant Governor of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Judy Foote. Good morning, Your Honor. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you this morning. I appreciate it. Uh, it's certainly a sad time. We reflect on uh, the life of Her Majesty, who gave 70 years of service to others, and her sense of duty was such that uh, I think most people uh, would say that she served people well, and uh, she certainly was a queen of the people. It's hard to know where to start. When I was thinking about this yesterday afternoon and prior to the show this morning, we're talking about a life of 96 years, 70 of which are on the throne, probably the most recognizable, famous, or infamous woman in the world or person in the world. Where do you start when you reflect on her time as the Queen? Well, certainly I, I think about the time I spent with her. Um, you know, when you're appointed as Lieutenant Governor, one of the things you do is you go to meet with her and uh, have a conversation. And uh, for us, I mean, and I've said this before, I said it yesterday as well when I spoke with some of the members of the media, was that I rarely stress out over anything. You know, whatever will be, will be. But I was nervous about meeting Her Majesty and all of the protocol that goes with being uh, a part of the monarchy. Um, you know, and you're expected to get it right. And uh, But I have to tell you, once that was down and the photographers left the room where we met, uh, we met with her for 45 minutes, 40, 45 minutes. And it was one of the most engaging conversations. Uh, her Majesty was so personable and invited us to sit and have a chat with her. And it went on, as I said, for 40, 45 minutes. So you come away from that knowing that while she's the queen and while she actually is the second longest reigning monarch, in, um, that it's uh, you're so privileged to have that opportunity. I hear John Perlin, who was formerly the Canadian Secretary for the British monarchy here as well, talk about the same thing through the same light, is that she had a way of putting you at ease, which is not necessarily what people would anticipate when you meet someone like the Queen of England. Uh, and, of course, Mr. Perlin would know. He uh, he served Her Majesty well for a long period of time. Um, and But when you, I think when people see her and when she visited Newfoundland and Labrador, and of the 22 times that she visited our country, which was one of her favorite, three of those were in our province. And uh, she was able to recount her memories of that visit with us when uh, His Honor and I were there. So the she remembers the uh, huge 
iceberg that uh, dwarfed the narrows of St. John's that year, that she, one of the years that she was here. She remembers the trip to Bonavista at a time when we were all concerned it was so cold, um, and she wasn't a young woman then, uh, but it didn't phase her, and it didn't phase those who were supporting her. Um, you know, whether she, you know, turned the saw to name the library at Memorial University as the Queen Elizabeth II Library. Her presence, I think, if you're in her presence, um, even if it's just to see her from afar, she, again, radiated warmth, uh, kindness, um, making sure that people who, you know, people who were in her reach um, got the opportunity to speak to her, uh, whether it was to present flowers or shake her hand. But it was a woman who, I mean, her approach um, just went to show that, uh, she wanted to be and enjoy being around those she represented. And as the Queen of Canada, she so enjoyed being here and being in Newfoundland and Labrador. You know, it's one thing for all the duties that she had and, of course, the extensive travel. But then just think about it in her own private lives. You know, you're a public figure, but let's just say some regular member of society and dealing with some of the trauma and the tragedy inside their own family. And then put yourself in the shoes of Queen Elizabeth. So whether it be the death of Diana, the three of her children's relationships ending in divorce, the death of her father, now what she's had to deal with Prince Andrew and otherwise, to do that and remain stoic and available to the public up until, of course, she became so frail that she was unable to do it, is really quite remarkable when you think about it. How many people would have just gone back into their shell, retreated to Balmoral, never to be seen again, but she didn't? No, and first and foremost, she was a mother. And she was a grandmother. And, of course, we all saw how, when Prince Philip passed, how that impacted her. Uh, they were married for 70 years. So put yourself in, in her shoes. And when you, we all know what it's like to lose a loved one. It's really hard to get on with your life. And uh, he was such a big part of her life. But she continued. Uh, and I think that, again, speaks to who she was and her sense of duty. But I think first and foremost, the joy that she got from her grandchildren, um, again, speaks to who she was and that we should never forget that while she was the Queen of Canada, that in fact she was a mother. And we all know, those of us who, uh, who are mothers, know how important our children are to us. And we would do anything for our children. And I think that's what we have seen with Her Majesty. And not even to mention her grandchildren, how Harry has kind of abdicated his royal responsibilities, which is another fascinating twist here. So that's the Queen. I don't know how to approach this particular question with you. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but now Clarence House has said quite clearly that King Charles III is now the King of Canada, the King of England. What do you think that means for the future of the monarchy? Because there has been long, decades-long conversations about what it means, what its importance is. Is it required? How does it work? The Queen really was the glue that kept it together. And I think it was the respect, you know, not everyone adored her, but many did. She was the person that, the glue that kept it all together and kept the monarchy on a track of being a part of functioning society. What do you think of the whole, the future holds for the monarchy under Charles? Well, you know he was here with the Queen Consort when they were both uh, the Royal Highnesses uh, four months ago. We hosted them here in Newfoundland and Labrador, but we hosted them here at Government House. 
And I have to tell you that they were the most personable, uh, most outgoing, uh, reminding me so much of the approach that Her Majesty took uh, toward those that she served, um, you know, as queen. But they were when they were here, um, they were so accommodating. Uh, when they walked down the commemorative walkway, um, they made a point of, of uh, spending time with those who were lined up along the walkway. They were so engaging. When we did the solemn ceremony at the Heart Garden, where we had our Indigenous leaders and our elders, they were such a part of that. And with the students who were there uh, from Bishop Field, um, students who planted hearts in the Heart Garden, they spoke to them as they were leaving. There wasn't an opportunity that they didn't take to engage with those who were here on the grounds of Government House. Very much unlike his mother, Charles, we know a little bit about his politics. And as the monarch, Queen Elizabeth II was very uh, guarded with hers. Now, I guess you heard from uh, former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney yesterday say that in conversation with her, he understood that she supported sanctions against South Africa, for instance, regarding apartheid. But she never commented on what she thought of one person or another, one leader or another, one president or one prime minister or another. Charles, different story. We know a little bit about his stance regarding environmental issues, for instance. So... How do you think that's going to change how the monarchy is presented publicly? Because the Queen, you know, with her stoic uh, presence, it was sort of emblematic of British resilience. Charles a different kettle of fish, especially when we know a little bit about his politics. How do you think that influences how the King behaves now? Well, I think it's a different generation. And uh, obviously, he's very in tune with the issues of the day, as was Her Majesty. Let's not forget that, although maybe not as outspoken as Charles, as, as King Charles III um, is. But I think it goes to show that, you know, they move with the times. Certainly Her Majesty did when things happened, when Princess Diana passed, and there were uh, calls for her to be more vocal, to be more present. Um, I think with, with Charles, what you're seeing is his involvement. Again, it's... It, issues that are important to society today that he's engaged in because he wants, I think, to send the message that it is, um, these are opportunities. And if he can influence or make a difference, like the Wolfer campaign, for instance, that he's the uh, the chair of, right. you know, and that's looking at um, the sustainability of wool as a, as a product. And he's trying to help that industry. So he's put himself front and center uh, to help those who need help, but as well to look at issues that impact people. Realistically, and not to get into the minutiae, because people are dealing with these this news in different forms and fashions, of course, like people do. But what does it mean for the practicality of things that have to change regarding say, Government House or the Government of Canada, because there's a lot to be considered here. And not to detract from her life and times and her legacy, but this does bring upon, whether it be the black ties and black ribbons uh, and all of those sorts of things. But reference to the Queen, it's been 70 years. There's no one has given much thought to it. It's not like we have to concern ourselves with portraits and currency and anything today, but realistically and practically, what changes? Well, interestingly enough, like you're probably aware that we um, give out uh, certificates here at Government House for seniors or for anniversaries or people who turn 100. We recognize them uh, here in Newfoundland and Labrador. This morning, I was signing off on certificates, and we had to change it from Her Majesty to His Majesty. 
So I was signing as the representative of His Majesty this morning. So all of the Queen's Council, they will be now known as the King's Council. So lawyers who are recognized that way will now be recognized with a KC instead of a QC. So there are a lot of things that are going to change uh, for the very reason that we now have a king uh, instead of a queen. Can you just imagine the references to Her Majesty throughout government documents in the military and the, the, the like? I mean, I know there's, I think there's a period of about a year where governments get a chance to deal with these particular matters and portraits in schools and a government house and the like, but it does begin today. And it it, it's not to detract from her life. It's just the reality of the next stage of the monarchy. I really appreciate your time this morning, Your Honor. Would you like to add anything else? Well, I said yesterday, um, yesterday when I started, I said today is a sad day. It's heartbreaking uh, to lose someone of the caliber of Her Majesty and someone who's just left an impression on everyone with whom she dealt. Um, it was a sad day. But we do know she was 96 years old. She lived a full life, and we have to be happy for the royal family and for her that uh, she was able to get to live to be 96. Um, yesterday I did say, but life goes on. And uh, now we have to contemplate life under a king after Her Majesty being there for 70 years, 70 years of service. Of course, here in Newfoundland and Labrador, her presence is felt, but so is the presence of the monarchy. Because if you look at all the things that have been designated royal, so you have the Royal Newfoundland Regiment, you have uh, the Royal um, Canadian Mounted Police, you have the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, you have the Royal Regatta that this year, in fact, referred to themselves as the Jubilee, the Platinum Jubilee Regatta. So her presence is far felt. In fact, the presence of the monarchy is felt is far felt in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Absolutely. And to know the story that she presented medals at the Royal St. John's Regatta in 1978 is fascinating. We're act actively trying to find one of the members of the crew that received the medal from uh -huh. the Queen, what they remember of that day. I wonder when the coronation will be. After Queen Elizabeth's father died, uh, King George VI, I think it was 15 or 16 months before she was coronated, so that'll be the ongoing conversation. But, of course, the U.K. has come to a halt at this moment. Really appreciate your time this morning, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you for asking, and it's my pleasure. Take good care. You too. All right, bye-bye. Judy Foote is the Lieutenant Governor of Newfoundland and Labrador. Before we get to the news, line two, Rose. Rose Marie, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Okay, how about you? I know you're close to news, Tom, and I apologize. Just a quick update on Leo. There is no update on Leo. We haven't seen him. We haven't, there has been no sight of him anywhere. This is like, what, 10, 15 days today. He's been gone. Sorry, Vanessa. Anyhow, we've, we've put up posters. We've gone door to door. We've gone everything. This morning, I got a call from a lady around this land saying she probably saw him. It's just, you know, we, we, I am going out to look around and see what we can find. We've had drones all over the East Coast Trail, everything. Rosemary, very quickly, describe Leo and where the dog was last seen so that anyone can keep an eye peeled for for Leo today. Leo is a purebred Chelsea. He's, he's, got, he's got a brownish color, but he's all white, beautiful white mane. He's got a white tip on his tail. You cannot miss that white tip on his tail. And he's microchipped and he's tattooed. Okay, he's three years old. Well, today, I think he's three years old. Okay, and what else? Glassine is glassine. I live on the main road in Portugal by the Enel store. He left my driveway and ran up towards the post office. 
He was glad to see my Arab family running towards the post office. Where he veered off to, we don't know. No, okay. And I begged everybody to come forward to tell me where you found us. Nobody's doing it. Fingers mm-hmm. crossed, Rosemary. Give us your number one more time. Uh, 330-2365. Okay. God love you. I really appreciate your kindness. My pleasure, Rosemary. Fingers crossed that Leo comes home. Take care. Bye. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break for the news. Still another full hour to speak with you right after this. Don't go away. Nutrition. Exercise. Keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, here we are on Friday. And, of course, the end of the first school week for the K-12 system. And just yesterday, the application process opened up for the pre-K. There's some five spots, five schools that will indeed have the pre-K coming up this year. The hope is that by the end of next year to have all 30 involved in that pilot program. But the questions still remain, and I'll put it out to you because I know what's going on, for instance, in my own wife's school, so to speak. But were all the positions filled when your child went back to school? And most importantly, is for students that need some additional supports, to student assistance and otherwise, were they there? Because that's the one thing that I can never understand year to year, is your child, nothing changed if they had a formal diagnosis of ADHD or autism or something or other, and they need some additional help. Was that person in place when your child returned to school? Because far too often, that's not the case. Now, today brings an end to the, uh, the human rights inquiry into the educational opportunities afforded to Carter Churchill. Of course, Carter has some physical needs, and of course, he's also deaf. So this, I think, will have a big ripple effect throughout the education system. Because, as you know, when we talk about inclusive education, it can't just be a label we apply to the fact that all children are going to school in the same building. If you have children with additional needs, whether it be like Carter or Churchill, and for a teacher to be able to use uh, American Sign Language effectively and efficiently, when in this case, was not available to him. Now, he was indeed at the pilot project school at East Point Elementary last year with a different set of circumstances and a different set of professionals that were able to better attend to Carter and other children's needs. So I think whatever the decision here is made, it will have an impact right across all of the children who do indeed need some more help, some additional supports. I think that also includes children with exceptionalities. You know, there's a family that I know, and one of their children in particular is off the charts smart and becomes quite easily bored in school because the curriculum is just not challenging enough. The teachers over the years have tried their level best to ensure that he remains challenged and engaged, but far too often, just like with children who needed some additional help, they don't get that kind of additional one-on-one attention if they're an exceptional student. So I really do think that whatever we hear from the final decision coming from this human rights inquiry and for the Churchill family who have been fighting the good fight for years to bring it to this point. This will be an impactful decision because uh, you've got to believe that they will find out, based on the testimony heard, that young Carter Churchill was not indeed given the type of supports required to have a successful and an equitable opportunity in the K-12 education system. So this is going to, have to be a big deal. But if your family is involved in the K-12 system this year, let us know how week number one went. Additionally, part of the end of summer brings along not only going back to school, but for many families who have had some flex summer hours or have been on holidays and may be able to find some additional help pardon me, to take care of their infants, for instance, the scramble for daycare has been absolutely real. 
I've been bombarded with stories via email. Some people are hesitant to come on the program to talk about their own personal affairs, and I get that. But hopefully you consider this place, uh, this show, a place where you can indeed have these conversations, and maybe, just maybe, the right people here and the appropriate changes are made. So, two things. How's it going on the return to school so far? And what are you seeing in your child's classroom? And also, the scramble for daycare, specifically for infants, has been a really big deal early on this year. Okay, just some information, maybe for Dorcas or others out there in the retail world regarding the tax on sugary drinks. This is from someone who operates uh, said retail space. Here it is. A retailer who purchases all their sugar beverages from in-province wholesalers does not have to register as a tax collector. They pay sugar tax to the wholesaler. They collect sugar tax from the customer. They break even in the long run. They do nothing else. No remittance to the Department of Finance. This is what the quote-unquote, the taxes collected at the wholesale level really means. Only retailers who purchase items from non-registered, i.e. out-of-province wholesalers, have to register, collect the tax, and remit monthly. In this case, there is no in-province wholesaler, so the province expects the retailer to collect and remit the tax on these products. So it is in the government's circular, but as this person points out, is not very clearly stated, so consequently, therein lies some of the confusion. Quick check on the Twitter box. We're VOSIM Open Line. Follow us there. Oh, some references to why not ask the Lieutenant Governor Judy Foote, who we just spoke with prior to the news, about some of the issues and some of the real black marks or warts that the monarchy would have. Not sure, so, not so sure it's appropriate for me to ask that of her, but look, we did talk about some of the issues inside her own family. You know, the passing of Diana, Prince Andrew, and the fact that three of her children's uh, marriages ended in divorce, things that have been very tricky to navigate. Now, I was also quick to say off the top of the program, it does not mean, even for people who are grieving today, and I'm sure there's many, some of the issues regarding what the monarchy has meant for indigenous communities and African communities or countries and countries in the Caribbean, it can be part of the conversation. We can have it here on the program. Let's take a break. When we come back, Brian's there to talk about back to school. Terrific. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, can you tell me if there's going to be a book of condolence for the late queen at government house? You know what? That's a question I really should have asked Her Honor when I had a chance. I don't know. I'm going to guess yes, but I, you know what I can do for you? Yes, I'm going to guess yes, too. Yeah, I think that's probably yeah. going to happen, but I can confirm that for you, though. What we'll do, Dave, can we just ask that of Government House very quickly? And when we get confirmation, I'll say it on the air. How's that? Also, the hours. Like 8, eight to 4 or 9 to 5 or whatever. Uh, is there going to be certain hours? I would imagine there would be. Now, Linda Swain is actually texting me from the, the, the newsroom, and she says, yes, with an exclamation mark, there will be a book of condolences, which you and I both guessed. The hours, I don't know. Maybe Linda's going to type in those, that piece of information, if she has it at her fingertips. If not, we can contact Government House very easily, very quickly, and get that information. As soon as I do, I'll talk about it on the, the show. Air. Yeah, I certainly will. For everybody. Absolutely right. Okay. Thank you, Patty. Thank Have you. Have a good weekend. The very same to you. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, you know, it was for sure going to be a book of condolences, but I'll get the hours for you, caller. We'll say it when we get it. Let's go to line number two. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Okay, how about you? I hear you talking about all those important things these days. I want to point out to you that 
uh, you were talking about Eddie Shack uh, yesterday. That it was uh, Punch Imlach who uh, encouraged Eddie Shack to finish his high school education. And I was very impressed with that. And uh, you're talking with the Queen today. Uh, I was reading a book by Bill Rowe a number of years ago, and there's just a hilarious anecdote about the Queen and Prince Philip going into Confederation Building. And if you ever read that book, you'll find a very, very uh, funny uh, excerpt uh, about the Queen and Prince Philip. So they had an interesting time, I must say. Now, you were talking about the opening of the school and a lot of the challenges at school, and you're right. But one thing you point out, and he did it this morning, I hope he didn't do it in passing, is uh, helping the, uh, those who are gifted, the gifted students. And I'm going to tell you, Patty, there's a lot of them there. I think one thing you, you got to do as a teacher, and I, I taught some really, really bright kids uh, out in Saskatchewan, uh, one thing you got to do as a teacher is be humble. You're going to walk into a classroom where some kids are going to have better aptitudes than you have. I'm not going to mention their name because it wouldn't be fair. But when I went out to uh, Prince Oliver first, I came across a young boy. He was 15 years old, and he was in grade 10. Now, I taught religion. I didn't teach, uh, I didn't teach the sciences or math. And... Um, this boy finished high school, and he went off, and he got a, a degree at U.S. in physics. And a number of years later, I heard he had left uh, Saskatchewan, gone to MIT, and got a Ph.D. in physics from MIT. No, not everybody can do that. And I remember having him in class, and I remember he asked him one day, they were doing calculus, and you know calculus from your kids. And, and he was, uh, I gave the kids some time to do some work. And he was working on, he was working on his calculus. And he looked, he looked at me and he asked me, he said, did I, did I have any knowledge of calculus? I said, I'm lucky I can add two and two. And you know, he looked at me and said, ooh, he says, and you're a teacher. And I said, well, I said, and all teachers know math. But, you know, you've got to be a bit humble. There's going to be kids in our class who have deeper aptitudes than you have. And the board that I taught with are always prepared. I remember one girl, had a, she had a uh, spinal problem. And, there, and when she was in my grade 11 class, the first day of school, there was a uh, person assigned to her to go from class to class to take her notes. And, you know, they were just prepared. And when we had kids coming from other parts of the world, because some of the ch some kids would come to our school to learn English, and many of them came from Japan, and there was always someone there to help out with their, with their skills, with their language skills, so they know what's going on. So you're right. Even with the gifted students, you've got to be prepared for the first day, or if not, they're going to be like students, uh, like the one you're talking about, who had harder hearing. They're going to be bored. And uh, I agree with you, the school, the board, and the teachers had to be ready from day one.
that these students are trash. Yeah, it's important to uh, speak to and to teach the children where they are. So if uh, Johnny is an overachiever, let's challenge Johnny. Keep him engaged. Make sure that he maxes out his experience in grade six, we'll say. And if uh, Johnny's classmate uh, has some additional supports and needs some help with math or reading or what have you, let's make sure they're there. Because the quality and the caliber of the education system has to be uh, equitable across the board. Let's get the children where they are. Let's get off to good starts. Because over the last two and a half years, I think there are some fair worries about how things have gone in the education system. We can't afford to fall behind. No child can. Some children will be able to make up lost time in some of the miscommunications and some of the uh, absence from in-class opportunities. But let's make sure every kid has the same chance. doesn't matter. And it's just too important to overlook it, regardless if you're exceptional or you need some real help. You know, that's true. And you have many students in our class, I mean, I won't say many, but you have students in our class who are mentally challenged, and they can be reached. They can be reached, and they can make contributions. I remember having a little girl in class, and when she left grade 12, she was mentally challenged. No, she didn't do it as good as everybody else. But um, when she left, she went working at a, a, a thrift store. And that that may not seem much. And when I retired, I I went down to that store, see if I could see her and and, uh, see how things were going. And her boss was telling me that when she left high school, she went working at the thrift store for 17 years. And, you know, Patty, she never missed a day. I can't say that. I don't know if you can. But, you know, you can give these kids... The first thing you got to give them is self-respect. You got to give them self-respect. Uh, they know if they're challenged. They know if they're not as gifted as everybody else. You got to give them self-respect, and you got to help them out. And that's where you, and that's where it all begins. If there, if you uh, make sure in your classes that the kids who are not gifted, or kids who are not as uh, not as, <coughs> sorry, not as bright as everybody else. If they're not respected, they're not going to succeed. So the first thing in our class, make sure that all your students are respected, no matter what their abilities are. It's a big part of it, Brian. I really appreciate your perspective and your time this morning. Thank you again, Patty. And, you know, you talked a lot about, about, uh, about Eddie Shack and the Montreal Canadian. I remember an Eddie Shack, uh, you know, they used to call him, you know, they, you know clear the... He dropped the gloves one night and was going to go out there uh, one, of the, one of the Montreal Canadiens. And I tell you, they backed down from You know, I know you're a Montreal fan and I'm, not, I'm a Chicago fan, but I remember Eddie Shack chasing around Bobby Hall and I tell you, Bobby Hall didn't want to have anything to do with him. There was plenty of people who didn't. <laughs> he was a hard-nosed man, and you know one of the unfortunate nicknames is some people call him the entertainer, some people actually call him the nose. But he was larger than life figure, that's for sure. Yeah. Good morning, Paddy. Same to you, Brian. Take good care. Thank you. Yeah. Alrighty, bye-bye. Now, we will hold off with, uh, on Barry for after the news. He wants to talk about the River Guardians, and some good news on that front. And, of course, moose hunting season opens up here soon. It depends on the, uh, the uh, region that you're in. But they, I think that's coming soon. I think some of it opens on the 11th. Some others open on what area you're in is the word I was looking for. Some open on the 18th. But we'll hear from Barry right after the news break. First, let's check the Twitter feed. 
or VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. I'll read you a very quick one. What is wrong with you? Question mark. Discussing issues that have arisen over time among various monarchy members is inappropriate and downright disrespectful to the memory of the Queen. Shame on me. Well, it says shame on you. But, you know, as we said off the top of the show, it's hard to know exactly what today should feel and sound like and issues, issues up for discussion. But it's hard to avoid, you know, like even when we asked the, Her Honor about some of the the strains and pressures on the Queen when dealing with very personal matters, like the passing of Diana, like the fact that some of her children's marriages ended in divorce, because that's a big deal. It's not only the, the Queen of England, but head of the church. So how she dealt with it was actually giving her credit for being very stoic through, through very difficult times. I'm not a monarchist, but I did admire the Queen. For some reason, there was something about her. Maybe it was some of the mystery and her presence, which was omnipresent. And put it this way, we're Northern Irish Catholics, so I think we did okay here today. And I, I'm not going to feel any shame to talk about things that have happened in Queen Elizabeth's life. And if you want to talk about it from any angle, you can do it after the news. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. And welcome back to the program. For the caller who inquired about the Book of Condolences, there is indeed, of course, going to be a book of condolences available to the general public at Government House for the next 10 days between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. In addition, this information thankfully shared by Linda Swain, the church bells will ring today to mark the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. At noon today, the Anglican Diocese of Eastern Newfoundland will toll church bells throughout the diocese 96 times for each year Queen Elizabeth's life. There you go, there's the information. So for the next 10 days from 9 to 5 at Government House, you will indeed have the opportunity to sign a book of condolences. Let's go to line number one. Barry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Uh, I guess we start off first, Patty, with the uh, River Guardian situation. We received some great news yesterday. Um, you know, it's not completely there, but we got uh, 40, approximately 40 River Guardians hired on for an extra four weeks. And that in itself is a an accomplishment. Uh, we will, though, uh, we'll take that as a win. And we will, though, in the new year, begin our lobby again to uh, reach a solution. And the solution to this, Patty, is that they hire on more people and train them and keep them hired on for a longer period of time. Yeah, sure. It just stands to reason, like the conversations we've had in the past. If they're there to try to discourage the poacher, if you... If you leave the, a month early, then the poachers will just wait. <laughs> so we just got to make sure we do the right thing because we know that the Atlantic salmon stock is possibly in trouble, so we can't allow that to be further damaged because of the nuisances who are willing to poach. Absolutely well said, Patty. Uh, as well now, uh, we got tomorrow you touched on. Tomorrow is opening of the big game rifle season, and uh like to wish everybody a safe and successful season. Uh, make sure of your uh, make sure you ident- positively identify the target that you're about to shoot at, and make sure that the area behind, in front of, inside the side of the target is safe before you shoot as well. And make sure you know where you are in proximity to residential areas. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. There's a, there's a lot there, there's a lot more to it than just being out there hunting with a gun. There is a lot of awareness that you have to be aware of as a hunter and your responsibilities to the general public, and as well to the general public. Uh, Sunday hunting has begun early this year. Uh, it began two weeks ago for the bow hunting season, but now this weekend is the rifle season. And I would say that the berry pickers and people, outdoor users, non-hunters, 
who have just as right, just as much a right to be out there in the countries as as hunters do, but they should take the extra responsibility to put on something that bright clothing or even blaze orange to let the hunters see them as well. Absolutely, you know one thing, and it's not to mock whatever choices hunters make, but you know the trick is is your scent. I mean, it's not. The, the the camo, you know, blaze orange is a protection for you and other hunters out there who would hate to be the one to pull the trigger that struck and killed or hurt another hunter. So to be seen is to be safe. Well said, Patty, well said. And Patty, I'm uh, on the way over to Bridges to Hope uh, Food Bank and Single Parent Association Newfoundland Labrador Food Banks. Uh, earlier this summer, we, we made donations of capelin to them. Uh, now that we have some money in the bank, I went and bought five gallons of blueberries. I got them frozen. I got them uh, into Ziploc sandwich bags. And I'm about to drop them on the way to Bridges Hope now and make a donation there. And then on to uh, Single Parent Association after that to make the donation of the rest of the blueberries. And I'd like to also uh, suggest to the uh, big game hunters to think about uh, sharing the harvest. Sharing the harvest, I know, is the group that uh, lobbied the government to ena- enable big game hunters to legally donate moose and caribou meat to the food banks. And, uh, you know, there's three times when you can do this. There's one when you get the, you harvest your moose and you bring it to the butcher. You can ask the butcher to set aside X, num- X number, X, X bit of meat. When you get it home, you get ready to put it in your deep freeze and realize you have too much. Or, if you've already been uh, successful throughout the season, it's still not too late. And the deadline, I believe, is the first Saturday in January. And as a uh, as an incentive, Pat, as an incentive, uh, we, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. We receive financial grants, Patty, that we can now have. We now have the ability to pay for uh, big game meat that a hunter wishes to donate through shearing the harvest. I would say that if a hunter wants to do it him or herself, that's fine, but they would have to assume the cost themselves. Registering through us, sharing the harvest NL, we will pay for that meat. And as well, every five pounds or five packages of meat that you donate to our program through us, we will write your name on a ticket, and the prize to be drawn in January is going to be a hunting rifle. Is it just for big game, or is it for, for instance, seals, or is it for birds, or is it just simply for the big game? Good question, Patty. For our program, we're basically talking about moose and caribou. Uh, however, we also branch off into capelin and blueberries. As well, the general public can donate uh, uh, rabbits, can donate grouse, can donate codfish, can donate whatever the case may be, as long as it's legal, of course, and it's uh, it's in, a, in the proper state, like frozen and pine cleaned and that, right? Yeah, fair enough. So and you mentioned berries. I thanked a couple of people off the top for the bit of moose and the bit of cod and the bit of rabbit. I also got some muffins with some partridge berries from Fogo Island. I had one this morning. Delicious. Oh, you're making my mouth water. <laughs> yeah, really quite good. So big thanks to my neighborhood friends, uh, Wayne and Mary Kate, for those. Yeah, and uh, back to the River Guardian situation, sure. Patty. Uh, I, I didn't think that anything was going to happen. I honestly didn't. And I was pleasantly surprised. Um that something did uh, as well. You know, my, myself and Paul White have been on the trail now for three years, and he he's been at it longer than I have, Patty. And uh, you know, we're not looking for a pat on the back, but uh, you, from the government press release and the politicians talking, you swear to God that uh, you know they came up with it all themselves. Quick question: I hadn't uh, thought about this with the River Guardians. 
So we know the wildlife officers, uh, the training they undergo and what they can do, what they're allowed to, the authority they have when they encounter someone who's breaking a rule or regulation or a law on the river. What about the training for the river guardians? And what, I mean, are they armed? Or what can, what can they do? What kind of authority do they have if they come upon something that they need to deal with? Well, I guess, now, I, I, Patty, I don't know. And I could only surmise on that. And I guess that, you know, if they didn't have the authority, then they would call the RCMP or the or DFO or, or Wildlife. Uh, if they do have authority, then they could do it themselves as long as there's no, you know, they look at the situation. Uh, quite possibly, Patty, uh, they may call in a, the RCMP or Wildlife or DFO to accompany them on the, uh, on the, on the possible arrest. Yeah, I was just curious. So some of the boys, uh, Paul or Dennis or whoever, who are listening, who are actually river guardians themselves, if they can help us answer that question, that would be helpful. Appreciate this this morning, Barry. Patty, thank you very much for your time. It's always been a pleasure. My pleasure, sir. Take care. Have a nice weekend. Thank you. You too. Alrighty. Bye bye. Yeah, you know, and sometimes it's funny how you all of a sudden get branded as one party supporter or another. Like for instance, with this River Guardian story, the guardians themselves and folks who have a keen interest in protecting the wild Atlantic salmon were in unison calling for this move to be made by the government. So if someone is willing to say, including me, that good job, good decision, because like we've said many times in the past, not one party has all the answers. They simply don't. Not one politician has all the answers. Not everything that any politician or party says or does is wise, smart, good, or bad, because they're all a mixed bag of good decisions, terrible decisions, corruption, and scandal. It's just the way it works. But on this one, it seems like the government heard the legitimate concerns and made the adjustment. So that's pretty much that. Okay, let's take our final break of the morning, a final break of the week. When we come back, you'll be in the queue. I can feel it. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, a caller to Dave said, could I give out the information one more time about the opportunity to sign a book of condolences, of course, regarding the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. So yes, at a government house for the next 10 days, from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., you can indeed do that. And then you're also going to be able to enjoy government house grounds. So Anyway, that's the information if you are so inclined. And also, in reference to an email or during the break, is about what what do we know about what happened out of Combat Chance or the Brea Renewable Fuels Facility? Not much is the answer. And, you know, went on to ask, when do you think we're going to get some more information here? I'm not exactly sure what information that person is referring to, but until there's an investigation that's been completed, I don't imagine we're going to hear a lot. But I'm like you. I'd like to know what happened. Uh, information is a powerful thing, but we really don't know a lot. We do know that the explosion happened in Unit 13 out at the facility. Apparently, it's one of the busiest units on site. We also know, of course, that eight people were injured. Two have since been released from hospital. That means six remain. And apparently, there's a couple of them in intensive care. So it's a very serious matter, no question. The union is going on to talk about things like, until the owners can prove that the site is safe, no one's going back to work regardless of how long that takes. That only makes sense to me. So why would anyone want to unnecessarily put themselves at risk? Because we know what comes what comes with a uh, an industrial site like Come By Chance and the possibility for these types of things to happen. So obviously the investigation needs to take place before we really get any more information. Uh, I see some people clamoring for it and say, you know, this reeks of cover-up. I think we need to allow people to do what they need to do here. 
And I don't imagine the union is going to allow for anything but full disclosure, full transparency, a very comprehensive investigation, and then whatever needs to be done to create a safe environment will have to be done. And I think you can count on fellows like Glenn Nolan at the uh, United Steelworkers Union to do exactly that. So I don't think the story is going anywhere, but ultimately uh, we wish everyone a speedy recovery. And you know what? The physical wounds will hopefully all heal. But it's some of the mental scarring that is obviously very real. I was quite surprised, well, I don't know how surprised I should be, that a couple of the people that were there on last Friday uh, around the explosion were also there when there was a couple of people killed back in the late 90s. So you know that there's going to be a lot of concerns, not only for the workers themselves, but for their family members. Because this is a very unsettling uh, circumstance here. A flash fire and an explosion at a facility like this so when the details become available, and of course, we won't let this drop. Nobody in the media is interested in letting this go by the wayside. And there was also, I think a caller yesterday or the day before, quite critical of one of the members of the media who was looking for more information. You know, asking if anyone had died and asking for first responders who were on site to please send that person a private message with some more info. That's exactly what the person was hired to do on behalf of their media outlet. It wasn't to sensationalize anything or to do anything untoward. It's because people want information. But on this circumstance, on this front, it's going to be a while before we get any, I think. So ultimately, we'll understand when people are discharged from the hospital. And hopefully we'll have another conversation with Mr. Nolan at the United Steelworkers in the near future to see what he can tell us about the preparation of the site for workers to return and whether or not as was intimated by a couple of members of the union, is that they're not sure if everyone is going to want to go back, which is, again, entirely understandable. I want to say thanks to Joe, who called a while ago, asking about the canopy growth facility up on the White Hills. It's an excellent question. Number one, we don't really know who owns it. We don't have any financial relations with canopy growth any longer. They paid us off that bit of a break. They were getting on their remittances to government, so we're kind of done with them. But what can be gone with that facility? Joe asked a critically important question. While we talk about food and food security and creating some jobs, then maybe, just maybe, a place that was set up to be a hydroponic growth facility can go ahead and grow something that we can eat versus we can smoke. Anyway, uh, da -da 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 -da. let's keep rolling here and go to line number one. Say good morning to the Mayor Whitburn. That's Hilda Whalen. Good morning, Mayor Whalen. You are on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning good. to you. Uh, no, I'm calling today. I was wondering if anybody was keeping their eye on the Vale Virgin. As I see that uh, building that it was in is sold, I'm told. Uh, so where, it's, where it ha is it still there? Where is it? And the paintings. Uh, I think the collection was worth the stations that across about four hundred thousand dollars, and they did not. They weren't part of the building sale either. But now the property where the Availed Virgin is, which is truly spectacular item, uh, that was part of what was purchased. And, of course, the group that was led by, I think, Mr. Vitch at St. Bond's College. So they purchased the Basilica, the school, and St. Bond's form. So where that statue sits is part of the, pro the package that has been purchased. So I think that's protected. Uh, what's inside the Basilica, I think, is also protect protected based on the, uh, the purchase itself. So you make a good point because... You never know where some of these gray areas might linger, but I believe that both are protected based on the group that bought it. I, I hope it is, because it, it's 
it should not have been part of the sale, to my knowledge, right? So. Well, I don't know how you back it out, because it was a gift from, uh, well, it came from Rome, from Giovanni Straza, right? And so if it was at the Presentation Convent, which is part of the Cathedral Square, then if that was part of the package that was purchased, I don't know how it wouldn't be part of it, even though it might be priceless. Whatever they paid for it, who knows what that statue was worth, and I don't know how that factored into an appraised price, but I think that's all part of it, yeah. I, I think uh, when it came in here, when it was presented to the province, it was presented to the province, and that's where they put it, apparently. It was 1856, so I guess... We had to find out now when they bought it in and who bought it in and who they presented it to. Yeah, I know who to ask to get confirmation. But once again, if you've never seen it and you're in and around this area, and for folks who operate like as concierges at hotels and B&Bs and Airbnbs, when people ask you what you can go, where you can go, what you can go see, I don't know how many people suggest you should go see this particular statue. Because if you've been to Rome or Venice or Paris or Barcelona or anywhere in the United States and seen some spectacular items of art, this one rivals anything I've ever seen. Yeah, it's supposed to be one of his best works. Yeah, it's tremendous. And there's a lot, well, there's a few, but not everywhere. There's a few of his uh, work around in different places, but uh, this one is supposed to be one of his best. I really don't want to uh, see that slipped away, you know? Yeah, uh, I don't think anybody wants to see anything happen to it, but I know exactly who to ask about that particular question, and I'll see if I can get some information. I'll share it with you when I get it, Hilda. Well, the, pri the price of the first thing we, sh we need to find out is the price of it, because there is a way to price such a priceless item. And if that uh, price, if it goes with the church, then let's hope that that price is in there. If not, then they're going to have problems. Yeah, I don't know if there's been an appraisal done, an official one. It must be insured, so someone's got to know some sort of a value assigned to it. I uh, appreciate the time this morning, uh, Mayor Whalen. Anything else you want to say? No, I'm just hoping that our emergency gets up and running soon. Seems like they're very slowly getting doctors in, but they aren't coming this way. And I don't think they will um, to, uh, get any better. They can't capture enough from Canada. Uh, to bring in, I think they don't get the physicians and surgeons on uh, um, with this new rule out of place to replace that and to speed up. Because if you give them a million dollars, if they don't uh, bring in foreign doctors and they don't practice what we got, uh, license what we bring in from Canada, we won't have any doctors for a long time. Yeah, so you're like in the ninth week, are you? Have no emergency room. That's right, and yeah. it, that's a little bit much. I, I've been talking to Megan Hayes, and, and I know they're making good moves, and the money, it's right about time, and, and that's where it should be, the same as any other provinces, in regards to, to the overwork and underpaid. But it's still the recruiting of bringing in foreign doctors. You know we 60 70% work foreign doctors. Without them, we cannot fill our, our need from within Canada, and they're not speaking about, when they say international, bringing in five doctors in five years' time, that's fine, but right now we need foreign doctors, and uh, they got to get after that, physicians and surgeons, and they got to work together. The, the, the CEO, Eastern Health, the physician, surgeon, and, and the minister, because it's like they're all operating in their own little bubble, and it, it's just not going to work that way.
There's some strange stories kicking around. I don't know if you heard the one about it. A, a doctor who graduated from Memorial University's med school back in the 70s, moved to Ontario, then moved down to Boston, I think it was, heard the story about Fogo Island, and offered to come to Fogo Island on his own dime to do it for free for three months, but he's got a problem trying to get accreditation and approval through the College of Physicians and Surgeons. Exactly. One of the issues was he's been practicing virtual care. He's got 40 years experience. He's been yeah. practicing virtual care for the last couple of years, but that doesn't satisfy the college insofar as being up to date and being actively uh, yeah. doing work as a doctor. I mean, here they are encouraging virtual health, but not recognizing it as actual health care. Something strange going on there. there it's, it all comes down to the physicians and surgeons. Like you say, it doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter how much they give them. If they don't license them, they are restricting the license. They re they license about foreign doctors a year. We used to have 30 and 40 at a time. Like They're, in, they're very closed-mouthed. Uh, no, we're doing what we're doing. And the government has to get at them. They're not rocket science rare. They're doctors. I mean, somewhere they have to stop and say, you know, we have to, to get some people in here. They don't they're not thinking, and, and I think that's going to be even all the doctors they bring in, in through the Megan Hayes and the minister, I think this is where they're going to stop and how long they're going to stay there before it goes again because the physicians and surgeons are just not doing their, well, they're doing their job, what they think they're doing, but the job they're doing is not the right one for us right now. Appreciate the time you've had the last word this morning, Mayor. Okay. Take care. All the best. That's Mayor. Hilda Whalen, not Whitburn. All right, good show today, good show all week. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.